0: All right, we're looking at the end of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark, and we are uh, on verse 38, Uh, but just to review for a second, we were looking at the death of Jesus, and we looked at it in in relation to Psalm 22, right? Um, Psalm 22 seems to be the guide for the way in which Mark writes the crucifixion account. Because there are just so many tie-ins, the words are carefully chosen to reflect the language in the psalm. And so, uh, pointing to the fact that this was all prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before. uh, Written by David, this is the son of David, and David is the one who describes Jesus' crucifixion before crucifixion ever existed. Okay, crucifixion was a form of torture that was established a couple hundred years after David's life and, and reign. So um, anyway, it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it and when you read it in that context. Now we come to verse 38, and um, why don't we read, uh, somebody read just the rest of 15 of the temple was torn in
1: two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died he said surely this man was the Son of God some women were watching from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. in Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid.
0: Okay, so uh, let's take a look here. Um, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. This is, of course, a very significant verse. Uh, there's a whole lot going on here, isn't there? Uh Matthew tends to talk about earthquakes and graves opening up, and so we know that there's other things that are happening in the time of the, of the death of Jesus um, that, that could have contributed to this. Mark doesn't give us this. He just gives us really, in essence, this theological statement that the temple is, is torn from top to bottom. Thank you. And um, so, so what does that mean? Uh, what's the significance of that? It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Okay. Well, and that God did it because it's top to Okay, you can't, I mean, if it was from human origin, it would have been God bottom to God top, God. top, right? <clears throat> top to bottom seems to indicate that God is doing it. Um, what is this curtain? Let's talk about the curtain. <laughs> so this is a picture or a schematic of the tabernacle, uh, which is... The model upon which the temple is built is just easier to talk about the tabernacle. It's clearer. Um, There are basically three parts to it. There's an outer courtyard. There is the holy place. And then there's the holy of holies, right? The holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant sits, where the mercy seat is, right? With the angels stretched out like this, where the very presence (laughs) of God dwells. And it's separated from the holy place, which is where the priests minister on a daily basis, uh, by a curtain. And this is the curtain that we're talking about. Okay? It's the curtain that separates the presence of God from humanity. This The temple is the touch point where God and humanity connect. And that curtain and all of the walls, the subsequent... Walls and boundaries of the temple all indicate the fact that we can't get to God, right? That because of our sin, because of our unholiness, we cannot get to God. We can't have fellowship with God. The only time anyone entered beyond the veil and into the Holy of Holies was one day a year on the Day of Atonement when the priest, with fear and trepidation, entered with the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and that was to cover the sins of the people for that next year. Okay, that was the idea. Jesus now, hanging on the cross, has given the ultimate sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. And so there's no need for this whole system anymore. So in essence, the ripping of the this veil in the temple is the de- declaration that the temple is obsolete, that it's no longer necessary, right? Because there's no more division between God and man, that the sacrificial system is no longer necessary because the ultimate sacrifice has finally been paid. What this all symbolized has now been fulfilled. Okay? And, and, and then we tie that together with the fact that this word to rip, the word is schizo in in the Greek language, and there there are only two occurrences of this word in the Gospel of Mark. The first time it appears is way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the day of Jesus' baptism, the Bible says, Mark tells us, that the heavens were torn open and the spirit descended like a dove. And now, as Jesus, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he breathes his last. And again, the temple veil is ripped. Same word, schizo, from top to bottom. There's this ripping at the beginning and the end. It's the coming down of of God from heaven, ripping into the box of our human history and our humanity to come to be with us to, and then the ripping again as, as he leaves, it's, it's really quite remarkable, but it acts as in essence bookends on either end of Jesus ministry. Okay. It's one massive sandwich, one massive inclusio that ties all of this together. OK, so it's 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 pretty cool when you look at it, both from a literary standpoint and from a theological standpoint. OK, <coughs> is, is power pack kid, verse. Like schism? Uh-huh. Schizophrenia? Yes. That? Yep. That Schizo. Works. Exactly. And it means to rip, to, to tear in, in two. OK, so it's a very strong word when it talks about, you know, we tend to say and the and the heavens opened. Well, it didn't open. The heavens ripped. Is what it says, Mm -hmm. and so it's a very, it's a powerful word in some ways, an awkward word. In the in its first context, which will cause you to realize, hey, wait a minute, there's something going on here, something special happening here, and it ties in at either end of Jesus' ministry. It's really kind of cool. Okay. Now, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. I've never understood
1: that. What what about a person dying would lead you to think he's God?
0: There's something about what happened that day on at the crucifixion. Um Everybody's looking at it through their own lens. This man is probably one of the most dispassionate um, Observer. observers, right? Simply because death was nothing to him. This man meant nothing to him, right? Jesus of Nazareth, just another insurrectionist, just another uh, person trying to us- usurp the, cl- the, the throne of Caesar, we, we kill dozens of these a year. You know, it's no big deal. This guy's a professional. There's something about the way that Jesus died that declares who he is. Now, what's really interesting is what he says. He says, surely this must have been what? The Son of God. Son of God. When has that title been used before in the Gospel of Mark? The answer is chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the only person to declare that Jesus is the Son of God is a Roman centurion. Not a disciple, not a priest. I'm going to close those doors. Not anyone else but a Roman centurion.
1: <clears throat> Is it reasonable to think that he was there during the trial?
0: Possibly. I would doubt it. I think, I think he's a professional. I want to, we'll talk about him in a moment. I think he's the mortician. I mean, this guy is the professional executioner. Okay. He's in charge of the, the detail that that does this kind of thing. Um, so I think I, I don't think he may have been present in may have been present in um, the trial when Pontius Pilate speaks <clears throat> with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't say much in that trial, <laughs> yeah. right? especially kind of according to Mark. This was the same one that pierced his side. Yes, yeah. most probably. I mean, that yep. mean, he was there on the spot. So right. Well, and he was right there, so maybe he heard what Jesus was saying because he was right there, whereas others were misinterpreting because they were a little farther back. People misinterpret not because what they see, but by what they believe. Okay? It's their presuppositions that cause them to misinterpret. That's the problem. You see, we've seen it all the way through the the gospel, haven't we? We've seen the disciples. We've seen the religious leaders. All of them make wrong decisions, wrong assumptions, because they're based on wrong assumptions about who Jesus is, about what the Messiah was supposed to do, right? That's why they can't see. It has nothing to do with our vision. It has everything to do with what we have in our head that clouds what we see and, and... colors what we see, okay? And so I, I really think that's why this man's kind of this objective <coughs> observer. But it's, it's very interesting that he is the one who is able to see that Jesus is the son of God. This is written to Romans. The book of, the, the book of Mark is written to the Roman church, okay? It's written at a time when the church is transitioning from primarily a Jewish sect To becoming a world religion and so the fact that a gentile the fact that a uh a a roman at that an italian of all people is is the guy who sees and understands the identity of jesus is quite a statement right for and an encouragement to the church isn't it and to us now, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of jo- Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So we've got this statement about these women, and um, we get their names. Remember in Mark, pay attention when he gives you a name, right? Because he doesn't always do that. I think he's giving us the names of these women because they are the official witnesses. They will later be the official witnesses of the resurrection. Um, what we do learn from this are a couple of things. Um, well, well, I'll ask you, what do we learn from this? Okay, what, what strikes you about this, this little paragraph? Okay. Jesus was a collector of Marys. None of the men were there. Only women. None of the men are there. The 12 disciples, where are they?
1: One's in a
0: Where are they? Yeah, but in the narrative of Mark, in the narrative of Mark they have disappeared completely. We don't see them from the garden of Gethsemane. The only one we see is Peter who makes it to the first trial, and then he's gone. And the disciples never, ever appear again in the Gospel of Mark. They're gone. The women are still there. They're at a, dis- they're at a distance, but the women are still there. Now, yeah, girl power, right? This is, this is an important statement because many people... Many people see the the Bible and Christianity as a male-dominated, male chauvinist, and it's not. When you look at it from a first-century standpoint, it is a revolutionary kind of book, okay? God, now, if you're writing this thing in order to persuade people, you wouldn't make your primary witnesses women, Because women didn't even, they weren't even allowed to be a witness in a court of law. Their word was, was not worth anything in society, both Greek and Jewish society. But Christianity elevates the position of women. What we see in this gospel is that almost every single woman that's mentioned is an example of faith. The Syrophoenician woman. The woman with the issue of blood. The woman who anoints Jesus with the perfume. The only, the only woman that is not one to follow is Herodias. Okay? All the other women are held up. in a, And here at this critical time, these women are mentioned. They'll be mentioned like three times in the text. Okay? So it's really very important and um, an important statement about Christianity and the equality of Christianity in the ancient world. It gives us also an idea these women were involved in Jesus' ministry, ministering to his needs, traveling with his band. They were part of his disciple band. All right? Um, They weren't numbered among the 12. But they travel with the band. They're roadies. They're there with him all the time. And they have an important role to play. Were they a rock band? Well, <laughs> Jesus. Jesus and, the, Jesus and the fishermen. I don't know. Um, so let's go on to verse 42. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Oh, well, let's just pause there. Okay. What does that tell us? Right. Okay. So this guy's a member of the council, but he's not one of the nefarious members of the council, right? He's one who's waiting for the kingdom. This is one of the good guys. What this indicates to us is that all of the council was not completely against Jesus. I mean, in the collective gospel history we know of at least two members of the council who were who were for Jesus, right? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Old Nick doesn't get mentioned in this in this one, but 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 Joe does and um and so most probably on that, at that nighttime trial, it was by invitation only, right? These guys were probably excluded from that because they just would have gummed up the process. Um, but Joseph is a bold man. He goes before uh, Pharaoh. The Bible says boldly um, went to Pilate. Now, Pharaoh, Pol- bold- I'm getting get my Bible mixed up here. Boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was, now, this is very interesting, okay? Um, So anyway, he's bold, and he goes, and he asks for the body. Now, there's this interesting exchange. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth. Um, why is this little exchange important
2: it helps to solidify the fact Jesus really truly died dead 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 because there would be stories that he wasn't dead and if the Roman centurion says he's dead the Roman centurion is staking his position on the fact that this body is dead
0: Exactly. So think about it for a moment. Um, this, uh, in this situation, the easiest way to explain away the resurrection is to say that Jesus passed out on the cross. They took him down early. They put him in a cold tomb of stone, and he recovered from his fainting spell, woke up. His disciples pushed the stone out of the way, and he slipped out appeared to him a few times, and then went into hiding. So this is his Roman death certificate. This is his Roman death certificate. This guy was a professional. Pilate turns to the centurion, and he says, he calls the centurion to ask if he's dead. He doesn't ask anyone else. He asks the centurion. Why? Because he's a stone-cold professional. He's the mortician. He's sent with the task to execute, and he knows when a person, a victim of crucifixion, is dead. (coughs) He ensured that he was dead. He pierced him with a sword or a spear to make sure that he was dead. The guy was dead, and it is certified. This is Jesus' death certificate, okay? Which is very, very important to substantiate the resurrection, isn't it? Okay? So that's really, I think... Noteworthy, Joseph brought some linen cloth and he took down the body and he wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance to the tomb. There's just some interesting things about this, the way this is worded. The Bible Bible says, now I was reading a commentary who talks about this the wording here in Greek it doesn't come through as strongly in English, but it comes through very strongly in in um, in Greek right he took he took the body um and it's this the way that that stated is the same way that Jesus talks about, and he took the bread and he broke it um it's It's the same language it's the same phrasing it's the same words. And then this idea of wrapping the body in linen. You know, I thought about that when i was doing communion. You know, you always have the bread wrapped up in a napkin, right? In a linen cloth, and you open it up, right? And you break it, and you wrap it back up, and it just reminds us. There's so many little details in what we do uh, in communion that remind us of these these details in the scripture. sermon. Huh? A good sermon. It'd be a good sermon, wouldn't it? He rolls a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Why is this an important statement? Because they're going to come back later. later. What's that? Uh Because they knew where they were going. Another argument against the resurrection is that the women didn't know where they were going. They got lost in the cemetery and went to the wrong tomb. And they found an empty tomb and thought it was Jesus' tomb and said that he rose from the dead, but he was really dead around the corner. They knew where the tomb was. They saw the tomb. Okay? And when they go to the tomb, they're not concerned about finding the tomb. They know where the tomb is. They're concerned about rolling the stone. Well, and another thing, this was day of preparation. So that means because Joseph had handled Jesus, he's not going to get to be in, was it Passover? Or just, yeah. Passover. Yeah. Yeah, this is the day of the Passover. And... um uh, you know, Jesus celebrates the Passover on Thursday night, and probably people celebrated the Seder meal at different times during the week. But the official day was Friday, the day before the 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 the, um, uh, the Sabbath, right? And um, and that's when they would celebrate. That that day was when the 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 Passover lamb was was killed. Okay, and so. Let's take a look at chapter 16. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Same three ladies, right? Okay. Now they've been mentioned three times in the text. You think they're important. Okay. Again, they are a witness. Brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They didn't ask, do you know where the tomb is? I have no idea. I think I'm lost. No, they didn't say that. They're concerned about the logistical issue of getting to the body because it's been sealed by a tomb because they saw the stone. (coughs) But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of <laughs> Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples. And Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's the end of the gospel right there. What an ending. Let's talk a little bit about it. I have the longer ending here we'll talk about. <laughs> um, but looks like we're not going to get to talk about today. We'll talk about it next time. All right. Um, so we have these women. They go. We know the story. They find a man inside the tomb, dressed in white, sitting on the right side, and they're alarmed. <coughs> yeah, I'd be alarmed sure, if sure I saw an angel hand. sitting in a tomb. Um, he says... perplexed about why Mark says he was on the right side. When you figure that out, let me know. I haven't figured it out yet. One of those details. I'd, I'm sure there's a reason. I don't know what it is. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. Any question about who this angel's talking about? No. No, Jesus, the, Naz- the guy from Nazareth, right, who was crucified. Yeah, that's the guy you're looking for. He's not here. Okay? He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. <sighs> well, that's another thing that's always me. Why does it say the disciples and Peter? Has Peter been yeah. excommunicated Well, as we know from the Gospel of John, Peter's having particular difficulty because of his denial. And so I think it's a direct encouragement to Peter. <clears throat> So, so here we have the end of the gospel. And there are another several verses, 9 through 20, that almost all scholars agree have been added later. Probably by about 135 AD, they get added into the text. They get added because the end of Mark just feels incomplete. Incomplete.
2: But the end of Mark does something the others don't do. The end of Mark allows you to ponder the reality of the resurrection and whether you believe it and what it means. It doesn't have the witnesses that confirm it. And ultimately, each person is going to have to arrive at what they think about the resurrection from just what Mark gives us here.
0: Yep. Yep. Because... There's so, an
2: old, old book by uh, sermons. Does anybody remember Peter Marshall? He was Presbyterian mm-hmm. minister was chaplain in the Senate. Well, in one of his sermons, The Garden and the Grave, he quotes somebody who wrote something called I Have the Keys or The Keys of the Kingdom or something. And the gist of the quotation is the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection never becomes a reality, never becomes a fact, an actuality, until one believes it in their heart. And I think that's what Mark is going for. Every person who ever hears the story of the gospel is going to have to determine whether he or she believes in the reality of the resurrection. Yep. And Mark is presenting it, and the tomb is empty. What do you do with an empty tomb is what he's asking.
0: So, so notice that there are no appearances <laughs> of Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up. There's no, um, there's no joy and excitement. There's no rejoicing. It just ends rather abruptly.
2: It's very sad.
0: It's a very sad ending. As a matter of fact, the women who we've seen, we've, the heroes, women, girl power, right? They end up trembling and bewildered. They went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid and they were told to go and tell, right? Hmm. And so they're disobedient, at least at first, (laughs) okay? And so it really ends with a note of human failure. One of the major themes in the book of Mark is the weakness of the disciples. And we've seen it all the way through, haven't we? I mean, these guys are, they're bumbling through this thing. Um. It gives me hope because Jesus never gave up on them. But they're not heroes, okay? If you're writing, if you're writing the gospel in order to create, you know, like ancient literature was all about heroes, right? The Iliad, the Odyssey, Homer, all these guys. It's all about, they wrote about heroes. And these guys are not heroes, that's what makes the Gospels so special. I think that Mark is written from the perspective of Peter, right? Because Mark is, is a um, disciple of Peter. There are elements of this that are Peter. And Peter is so humble about his experience with Jesus, about his failure in the midst of it all, that ultimately, you know, he ends up with a probably a, a solid C at best. You know, just just not a great disciple. <laughs> Later, when he gets the Holy Spirit, he really perks up and he does a really great job. But, you know, it's it's really very interesting. Um, and I think also it gives us confidence as we look at the gospel, because if this were if this were a book written by the disciples of Jesus years later in order to create a story that never really happened, they would have never written it this way. They would have never written it this way. Just so many elements of it just make it just, it's just not effective. You know, if you're trying, as a puff piece, as propaganda, right? (laughs) It's not effective propaganda. It's too real. It's too human. Okay? And this, I think, is one of the greatest internal evidences of of the the veracity of the Bible. And so it's something important to talk about. Um, What's interesting about Mark is that the only only witness of the resurrection we have here is the heavenly messenger. He is the one who says that Jesus rose. Okay? He's the one who gives us the message. And so just as Peggy was saying, the gospel of Mark is very evangelistic. Mm-hmm. And it lays out for us, um, kind of puts us, the gospel puts the disciples and the action in the same place that we are. How do we hear about Jesus? We get a heavenly messenger, right? Who tells us that he rose from the dead. <coughs> We have evidence. The only evidence we have is an empty tomb, is a changed life, right? I used to be this way, and now I'm this way. That's all I can tell you. Are you going to believe, right? Um, and, And that's really what we have here. We don't have any other evidence. We don't have any appearances of Jesus. We don't have anything else except for that miraculous change. We have our human frailty, um, and we have a message of salvation. Uh, So in some ways, it's kind of ingenious because it really is evangelistic in its its incompleteness, okay? I just thought of another big sandwich. Okay. When Jesus was born... Angels came and told the shepherds. And now Jesus is risen, and an angel who tells the women. Yeah, that's you know, that's mashing and Luke and Luke and Mark, <laughs> Mark, together, and Mark together. Right? <laughs> right? But um, but yeah, we see that in in this, and I think um, we see those kinds of events strongly in in Luke and in in Matthew. All right. Now, I'm going to introduce this to you, and we'll talk about it next week. Um, And that is the conclusion of Mark...